Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock, Managing Director of MCG Quantity Surveyors. And today we have a very special interview with Lloyd Edge. Lloyd is the author of the new book, Positively Geared, and the founder of Oz Property Professionals. Now, Lloyd was a school teacher on a very modest income and got into property to the point where he was able to quit that job from his passive income. He's now sitting on around $12 million worth of property and runs a business as a buyer's agent. And we chat all about his strategy, the importance of cash flow as well as growth properties about equity uplifts and his advice for beginner investors or investors that maybe have a couple of properties but aren't getting the results that they are after. It's a great interview with Lloyd, which I'm sure you'll get a lot out of, as did I. Here's Lloyd. Lloyd Edge, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. Good to be with you, Mike. Now, you've got a book out there, so you, you've probably got a lot of people that know who you are. But just to kick us off, if anyone hasn't come across you, Lloyd, can you let us know who you are and what you specialize in? Uh, so essentially, uh, I'm a property investor and developer and uh, essentially a buyer's agent these days uh, and essentially, uh, you know, helping people with, uh, you know, setting strategies on how to create uh, their own lifestyle goals moving forward, I guess. So uh, rather than just just property, I sort of specialise in, in that, that bigger picture of what people are trying to achieve and, and then uh, help them find that through using uh, property as the vehicle. Do you think that people sort of forget what they're trying to achieve and focus maybe more on the actual property itself? Like, oh, I want to get an investment property and I heard this area is booming rather than, you know, I want to retire at 50 or I want to go on a round-the-world cruise so I've got to make property fit my plans? Yes, that's exactly what um, people do. Uh, I think people uh, do it the wrong way. They think they can just sort of buy any property anywhere and don't really give it much thought. And one of the bigger mistakes people make is often buying property close to where they live because they think that they uh, they know the area or they want to be able to check on the property when really uh, they really need to look at uh, their long-term goals, what they're trying to achieve, and then the type of uh, properties that allow them to do that because if they're trying to achieve a certain element of, of cash flow, uh, passive income, for example, they need to be focusing on uh, you know, on that kind of thing, how they're going to build up the income, how they're going to build up the equity in the properties and, and buying in the right locations uh, and then using the t- right types of properties, whether you're going to do developments or renovations, uh, that's all very important. So you really need to think about uh, what you're trying to achieve uh, and why you're investing in property in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that sort of speaks to me. We shared some data recently that said that 60% of people buy within 50Ks of, of where they live. So we're we're still wanting to buy in areas that are pretty familiar and comfortable to us, I guess. To give us a bit of a background on you, Lloyd, though, what posters were on the bedroom wall growing up? Uh, I think uh, when I was growing up, I was really into motorbikes and, and horses and things. So I think I probably just had a few, few motorbike uh, posters of my, my favourite motorbikes and maybe a few motocross type posters and and things like that. Uh, and uh, you know, being a being a musician, I would have had uh, you know a few posters of some of my, maybe my favourite composers and, and things like that. People like um, Beethoven and Bach and and all that kind of stuff. So you were more of a classical musician then. I was a classical musician. Yeah, I was, I was a brass player, actually playing in the in the local brass band and the in the school band. Ah, what was the instrument? Uh, so uh, I was actually playing the, the euphonium, uh, which is a, uh, I guess probably something most people haven't heard of, but it's it's kind of like a uh, halfway between a, a trumpet and a, a tuba. That is niche. 
That is neat. You don't. You, I, I, you might be the first euphonium player I've ever come across. So it's a that's a it's an unusual one. What about? <laughs> I'm sure you do. What What about um, property, Lloyd? How did you first get started in property, and what was your first investment? Uh, so I first got started in property uh, essentially because I was I was probably in sort of my late twenties. So I was a little bit older than uh, maybe some people are when they start, um, and I was kind of at the stage where uh, you know, sort of being a teacher and a musician, not having a lot of money, I started to think I needed to try to sort of you know put some roots down uh, and try to create some financial uh, independence, you know, moving forward. So I kind of started to have that that dream and that and that goal. Uh, but my my first property was bought really without any kind of a a strategy or anything in place. I was kind of lucky. Uh, I still got that property. It was a one-bedroom apartment uh, in Sydney. It was uh, re- yeah, relatively close to the water and close to the train station and close to the you know all the amenities, like all the shops and things. So it's proved to be a pretty good investment, but bought without a, a strategy. Uh, didn't cost a lot of money because I didn't have a lot of money, so I paid a small deposit and things. So that's kind of how I got going. And uh, and then I ended up actually living in that property uh, for a while uh, and then started to develop my portfolio a little bit later on. It's an interesting um, story with you coming from being a musician and a, and a school teacher. What what was the dream in in school? Was it teaching or was it being a musician? So when I was uh, when I was in school, I was actually a, a golfer. Uh, played played golf uh, every weekend and um, you know during the week as well sometimes. And um, I think my uh, my dreams back then was actually to be a professional golfer. Um, and then uh, when that didn't really work out for me. I uh, sort of went into music, uh, but yeah, you know, things like property and stuff weren't, weren't really on the radar or anything back then. So when you were you were thinking, look, I'm not on a tremendous wage. I want to set up my financial future. You you sort of mentioned you had a bit of luck with the first one. There wasn't a, a huge plan. Did did you have? Did you quickly establish a plan after that one? When did the sort of plan and 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 the structure come about for you in your property investing journey? Yeah, so I, I started to. I guess start to set strategies and, and structures probably just a few years after that, uh, doing a lot of reading, uh, a lot of research, uh, reading books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, which is pretty much a book that just about everyone I know has, re- has read. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, you know, attending a few seminars and probably, uh, you know, learning what not to do just as much as learning what to do. Uh, and then, you know, from from there I, I started to sort of build a uh, an investment portfolio. But the next, the next few properties – nevertheless uh weren't necessarily great properties and uh and they didn't really perform that well for me either so it was actually a little bit later on when i really started to to grow things so i probably had about three or four properties with uh and still weren't really doing that well i was uh i was negatively geared they weren't getting a lot of growth uh mainly uh because i'd bought them in that's kind of at the wrong time because uh, mm. i'd sort of bought them sort of post the the boom after the olympics in sydney and, and things like that but i didn't right. understand how cycles and things worked uh but um i was quite successful in buying during the uh the downturn of the gfc uh where a lot of people were running scared so i got some good deals and started to turn things around for me then and and then developed strategies where i actually added some value to properties uh and that that being through developing and things like renovations and stuff uh, and they were the they were the catalyst for me really starting to to get ahead much quicker in property Awesome. Yeah. And I want to dive into that as well. But it's taking a step back a, a little bit, as you'd be well aware, 
negative gearing was sort of uh, a big part of the Labor policy that went to the last federal election. And a lot of the, um, I guess a lot of the, the rhetoric from the Liberal Party was that your average negative gearer, for want of a better term, was a school teacher, right? And, and you were one. I guess they were trying to say that they were everyday people, you know, police officers and nurses and school teachers. What sort of salary would a school teacher be on and, and, and how difficult was that salary to, to get your start in property by by saving for your deposit well it, it is quite it is very hard really on a on a small income because uh you know when i started out i was probably on not much more than about fifty thousand a year uh which effectively is enough to uh to get a loan uh but only only sort of a small loan but it's, it's hard to save that deposit the biggest thing is is actually saving that deposit so so for me uh i was very frugal and i and i've always been a good saver and been frugal with my money so when i was young uh, I didn't, uh, you know, own any new cars. For example, I was driving old cars. I never even went on an overseas holiday until I bought my first property. So I was in my late twenties or almost thirty before I'd even been overseas. So I, I wasn't spending money on things like that. I never had a credit card till I was about thirty-six. So you know, a lot different to maybe uh, you know other people. So I was, I was always on on a bit of a budget and saving all the time. Uh, and that kind of come back comes back to my upbringing, I think, because my parents never had a lot of money and were, were quite frugal. Uh, so for me, I managed to save that deposit over a period of time. But yeah, it's kind of hard work on a school teacher's salary. Uh, and that's why, for me, building up the portfolio uh, meant using other strategies where I was actually creating equity, because you can't keep saving deposits, because you yeah, it'd take forever on a teacher's salary to keep saving uh, for uh, property. Yeah, and that was my next question because, of course, you, I guess, remained a teacher as you were building the portfolio and I was wondering how you got around the financing hurdle. I mean, at, at, how, how far did you get just by saving for the next deposit before you actually had to enact those strategies and, and what were they? Well, essentially, uh, so when I bought my second property, uh, I had actually saved a little bit more money uh, bef- uh, since I bought my first property. So I'd actually basically had a deposit for my first and my second property. But when I went for my next property, I was actually be a- able to use equity from my first property uh, because uh, although I didn't really know what I was doing, it was in a good location and it had grown in value. And uh, I was able to refinance that, use some equity that allowed me to get into the uh, to the next property. Uh, so that that gave me a good uh, a good move along there, and it meant I wasn't saving a deposit. Uh, the bank was allowing me to use the security in that property to get to the next property. Um, but what the, the real catalyst for me was when I was really adding value, and when I did a development, uh, my first development being a, a, a duplex that I'd, I'd done, and uh, when I got that subdivided, uh, the profit margin on that it was one hundred and forty one thousand dollars profit that I'd got on that development but i was only earning about seventy thousand a year as a teacher so i I did one development and i earned twice as much through that just by doing it on the side uh as what i was earning the whole year as a teacher and the light bulb went off in my head it was like the aha moment (laughs) and i thought oh i'm I'm onto something here because i'd really added value there and i I wasn't gonna i didn't have to wait five years for the property to go in value i'd already made it i'd manufactured that equity straight away yeah and are those sorts of deals possible today in the market such as it is that sort of profit on a on a duplex project yeah absolutely in fact uh they're actually better in some areas they're actually better than that these days but you need to be in the you know the right locations 
uh, and and we look at what the you know the market drivers are and the demand in those areas. So so certainly the, you know there's some great projects and they're, and they're probably a little bit more expensive some of them these days than what they were back then, but definitely very possible because that that ended up becoming my niche um, and it still is. Uh, you know, doing doing your bread and butter duplex projects um, have done really well. Of course, I've mixed that up with a you know, number of other types of strategies and things, but the duplexes have been great, not just for the equity, but also for the cash flow, because if you've got a dual income property like that, then you're getting really good rental coming in. And that helps you too, because, uh, you know, it's good for your cash flow injection into your bank. But when you go for another loan, uh, the banks like to see, uh, you know, good rental coming in as well. So that, that assists you to get further serviceability for another loan. So how far along were you in your portfolio before you undertook the duplex development? Uh, I think I had about four or five properties prior to doing that duplex development. Uh, but, you know, the funny thing was I remember having about four properties and thinking that, you know, I'm in a lot of debt here. Uh, it's negatively geared, so it's costing me money and I'm on a teacher salary. So, you know, not doing, uh, you know, so great here. Uh, in a sense, it was okay because I was, I was able to use those negative gearing benefits to actually get money back on tax, and I was doing it through a PAYG variation, which mm-hmm. essentially means I was getting my tax back weekly instead of waiting to the end of the year. So it was actually quite good for my my uh, my you know my cash flow during the year as a as a teacher. Uh, however, I, I still felt that there must be a better way of doing things because a lot of people do very well out of property, and here I was uh, struggling along here with. Uh, for properties, but I wasn't going to give up. So that's when I started to look at these other strategies and think there must be a better way to to fast track things here. It's funny how on paper someone would say, "Oh, Lord, you've got four properties. You're a very successful property investor." But I guess you were, you know, right at that point where you could potentially be drowning a little bit by being, you know, negatively geared. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I remember when I was. Uh, uh, teaching and some of the teachers there were, were sort, of, sort of saying, oh, you've got you know, three or four properties you're not going to buy anymore, are you? And I was just thinking, I'm just getting started. I just need to find <laughs> the right strategies to move forward. <laughs> for, for clients that uh, are wanting to sort of jump on board with you uh, and are not at that point where they've got enough money to do a duplex development or, or maybe they're, they're a little bit sort of uh, conservative, what are the bread, bread, bread and butter style investment properties that you target for them? So it really comes down, again, it comes down to their, uh, their goals and what they're, they're trying to achieve. So uh, there's no you know, single bread and butter stuff that I would target for anyone individually. So if people have a smaller budget, you know, we can go out to, uh, to you know, to a good suburb, a good location, get something a bit cheaper that you can still add some good value to. Now, that might be through a, a subdivision that then you can, uh, you know, add value to later. If you've got a big block of land, subdivide it, you can actually sell that block and create some profit on that block, or you can keep that, that block you've just created and build on that later on. Uh, and then you've got the existing dwelling that you could renovate. So little things like that, and you can pick up those kind of properties really cheaply, in, particularly in regional type locations. Uh, if people have a you know a slightly uh, you know bigger budget there, then we can obviously look at doing stuff like that closer to the the city. Uh, duplexes are also not necessarily for everyone, so we don't we really just sort of sit there and just talk about okay, where's your duplex project going to be? It's more about what your goals are and uh, how. Yeah, how you're going to get there because if, if you've got a certain amount of cash flow you want to achieve and maybe your goal is to own your dream home, to put your kids through private education, for example, uh, you know, to, to own a big boat, uh, whatever, your, whatever your goals are to retire, then uh, you know, we look at that as a whole uh, and that's not going to mean that you're going to build 10 duplexes because it might mean you're going to build a couple of duplexes that will then help you get into some really good properties in the capital cities because ultimately you want to be 
buying properties in city in, in the cities such as Sydney and Melbourne that are going to get the the best capital growth. But most people sort of can't afford to do that to start with. So we need to look at strategies that that will allow you to get there eventually. And those strategies, would you recommend? Let's say we focus on a on a lower price point in a region, looking for a, a subdivision project or something like that. Would you recommend that to beginner investors, or is that something that you would likely do as they have a couple of other properties in their portfolio? Yeah, so it's okay to do that with beginner investors because uh, the whole whole idea of you know of an investor like that is they they need someone to sort of hold their hand through the process. So if they're getting the assistance from uh, you know, from a buyer's agent or, or a property expert to do that, then it's not as if they have to do it themselves. Uh, and when you're doing something like a, a subdivision, uh, even when you're doing something like a build, uh, you know, you're not building it yourself. Like I'm not a builder, I engage builders to do it. So you just need to have the right professionals around you. Uh, and uh, and with everything you're doing property, you should have a good team around you. And that, that comes, you know, the mortgage broker, the accountant, the solicitor, the builders, uh, everyone, the surveyor, the surveyor does the subdivision, for example. You need you need a team of people around you. Once you've got the right team in place, they manage all that for you uh, and then, you know, you just got to trust that you'll see the results then. What do the numbers typically look like on a project like that? Like what sort of price were we buying the block with the, the house on it? Typically, if you are renovating the front, what would you be spending? How much does it cost to, to split the block, etc.? Yeah, so... Essentially, the numbers in terms of buying those blocks depends on the locations, of course. I mean, if you go to regional locations, you can get them for, uh, you know, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars. Obviously, closer to the city, you get them for more. In terms of subdividing uh, the blocks, uh, and depending on what needs to be done, if you need to connect services and, and things, you, you know, you might need to be spending another twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars doing that kind of stuff. That all has to be coming to your feasibility. So you need to look at what the outcome is going to be. So if you're going to subdivide something, then look at what. Uh, what's going to be achieved, and if you're going to subdivide and the, and the block's going to be worth an extra hundred and twenty thousand on the on the other side, and you've spent thirty or forty thousand achieving that, then you've you've made, if you can clear eighty thousand dollars in equity there off a you know three hundred and fifty thousand purchase, then you've done really well. So you look at how the numbers work out in terms of a renovation. I kind of look at trying to get uh, you know three dollars for every one dollar spent. Uh, you've got to be careful with renovations not to overcapitalize. But if you spend twenty grand and then you can um, get your property revalued um, and get you know sixty thousand dollars back from that twenty thousand you spent. Then that's quite a good outcome. Um, but what I find that a lot of people who are renovating, I I recommend that you know people can do some of it themselves uh, because mm-hmm. it's cheaper than getting tradespeople to do that. So if you, if you are handy uh, and can do things yourself, then you can save a lot of costs there, and that'll actually help you get better outcomes. For sure, yeah, and there's plenty of tradies that have been very successful in those renovation projects. With when you're subdividing the block, do you do you consider the sort of the decrease in value of the house on the front? So if it goes from a house with a certain parcel and you're cutting into that, does, do you work that into your feasibility as well? And, and typically, how much how much would you expect that property to drop in value by cutting the backyard? Absolutely. So we do factor that in. Uh, and, and the way to factor that in is, is really just look at the comparables. So, for example, if you've got a, you're buying a thousand square meter uh, block of land with a house on it, uh, then you're going to chop it up and maybe you're going to make the new parcel of land 600 meters and the, the original block's only going to be 400. Then you really need to look at comparable sales and sold, you know, sold properties around the area and how much uh, they're worth. So you need to look at uh, what a house on a 400 square meter block is going to cost. Um, not a house on a thousand square meter block. So that's that all comes down to your numbers stacking up. But generally, 
uh, we find that in the right areas, there's not a huge difference there because, uh, you know, a good, good established house there uh, in, in a good suburb is still going to hold its value. Uh, so, so you can you can chop up the block a bit, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to lose a lot of value there. If you do lose a lot of value, then you 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 know you walk away from that deal. You don't do the deal. So it's all about doing that feasibility and and being comfortable with how the numbers are going to work. And that's one of the things. That's part of the strategy to make sure you're comfortable with uh, with how that's going to look before you actually go ahead and do it. Yeah, you mentioned before that really to get the best capital gains, you would be wanting properties in the city, but they can be very difficult to get into. Of course, if you're wanting to get anywhere close to the city in Sydney, you're a million dollars plus. So, is the focus really for for you personally and for your clients to is to do these sort of cash flow or uplift deals to be able to get into the position to buy what would essentially be a negatively geared property that's going to have some solid growth? Yeah, absolutely. So the thing is that, you know, properties are only negatively geared based on how you leverage them. So for example, when I buy properties these days in say Sydney, they're positively geared straight away. And that's simply because I put I have a lower loan and I put down a much higher deposit. But when I first started investing I wasn't in that position. So, uh, and a lot of people are not. A lot of people have a smaller deposit. So, getting into more regional markets and creating that equity and then using that equity to increase your, uh, you know, increase your cash flow and your buffer to be able to get into the capital city properties is a really good, uh, good way of doing it. And then part of your plan has to have an exit strategy. So, you actually do sell, uh, sell down half your properties. And sort of pay off all your debt because all debt needs to be paid off. But the worst thing you can do is, you know, own twenty properties all in regional locations because over the long term their growth isn't going to be as good. So uh, these things about manufacturing equity and things that's a strategy to help you towards your goals. It's not it's not the end goal. The end goal I believe is high growth properties. Those ones that uh, you know you can buy in Sydney or Melbourne and hold them for ten or fifteen years and they hopefully will double in value. Those kind of things don't. Uh, work in the regional areas, so you just got to use those um, those regional properties to actually grow your equity base to get into those capital cities. Ultimately, you know all your properties need to be cash flow positive. But if you've got high growth properties in in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane, um, and they're also cash flow positive, then that's 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 what you want want to be at. With with you personally, I'm wondering. So you could get into a, a Sydney property with a bigger deposit and and have it neutral or, or positively geared. But I mean, you could also leverage yourself a little bit higher and perhaps get into two of them. Is there always sort of like a a, a cash flow goal where you want this passive income to be at a certain level for yourself, and that sort of dictates your decisions? The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximize their claims and maximize their property education as well. Yeah, to, to an extent, I think for me these days, uh, it's simply because I I'm, I'm now at the point where I you know I've achieved a lot of my uh, my personal goals through or my personal lifestyle goals, which have sort of been achieved through property. So uh, I'm not as keen on taking on so much debt uh, and and stuff like that. So you know when I first started out, I was I was doing ninety five percent loans, uh, and in ba- those days, sometimes you could you could almost borrow a hundred or one hundred and ten percent. Banks don't even allow that these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and I didn't mind that at all, you know. 
there's no issues at all being millions in debt as long as you've got you know double that in equity sort of thing uh but yeah these days um, i'm still acquiring and growing my portfolio but uh, you know, I'd prefer to have sort of more equity into a property so that when the rents come in from those properties, uh, that's maintaining um, a cash flow positive portfolio for me. Uh, that's just a, a personal thing for me uh, these days because I, uh, for me, it's it's really about the comfort of you know, having the cash flow from my portfolio more than, you know, some people talk about, you know, a number of properties or, you know, how many properties they want to own. But for me, it's not about the number of properties. It's about uh, what the properties are doing for you. And, uh, you know the value of them more than the, the actual number of properties, and and also the uh, the amount of uh, I guess cash flow you can get from them and things. That's uh, that's really nice to hear. I, to be honest, I've sort of had a gut full of the people saying, you know, I've got ten properties or thirty properties, or my goal is to get ten in ten years. It it really doesn't matter. It depends on the quality of that property and how much of it you own, how much it's costing you, and all that sort of stuff, right? Well, there's two things there. One is you're better off having one solid performing property in a really good location than 10 in a really bad uh, location that's not going to do any good. And there's also, there's no point, uh, you know, I've met people who want to own 100 properties and I've, I've met people who, who do own 100 properties apparently. Uh, but but then when you find out where they are, they're in really remote locations where you can buy properties for $10,000 and they're probably going to be worth the same or less in 20 years' time. Uh, people make a big mistake and that's been driven by cash flow only so when people start thinking positively geared they think that if they just buy all these cash flow positive properties from the start in these regional locations that's the answer to all their problems but that's not actually going to work because uh the cash flow that's just going to serve as the debt that they got from the properties from from week to week but ultimately the wealth that you want to create in your life has to come from increased value it has to come from the capital growth in your properties so you know i'd rather one really good property in sydney than 50 properties in a location that's not going to do any good for you does it? Um, and I know you just said that it has to, but I'm, I want to poke it a little bit harder. Does it really have to? Like, for example, if you're buying cheaper properties in regional locations and they're all sort of 7% yields and let's say you get a principal and interest loan and it's slowly paying itself down, with enough of those, could you get to sort of like a, a passive income goal or is it, it is possible perhaps, but it just takes so much longer? Well, it might take a long time and I'm not, I'm not sure I... I don't really know of anyone who's done it that way. Uh, so that, that would be interesting to see if anyone actually has done it like that because if you get a principal and interest, like that's the only way to pay that down because at the end of the day, you've actually got to pay down the debt. Now, you can't pay down your debt. So if you, I guess another way of explaining it, if you just have interest only on your properties and the debt sort of stays the same other than some properties where you might take equity, but if the, if the interest just stays the same and the value of your properties goes up, then ultimately you can sell half your properties and you should be able to pay off all your debt and that's how you become truly financially independent. Now, that's not really going to work in, in areas if your property values don't go up. So the only way that can work is what you've explained, which is principal and interest, but that can take a long, long time because you're just uh, effectively just paying things down. And, and I guess generally when you sign a loan contract, you sign it for 30 years. So I guess if you have 30-year loans on everything for principal and interest, you'll eventually pay everything down. But then you'll end up retiring at the same age that everyone else retires, um, at, you know, at 70 with, with all these properties, and maybe you will have paid that, that debt down and, and maybe that could work. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure that's the, uh, yeah, the most prudent way to go. 
Let's forget about that, Lloyd. We want the shortcuts anyway. Um, are there any other things that you've done as part of either your own portfolio or for clients from an equity sort of uplift point of view? We talked about the subdivide, you know, building on the back, renovations. What what have been the best ones? Uh, well, the best the best ones, I think, definitely are, uh, you know, things like the, the duplexes, uh, the triplexes, uh, the house and obviously subdivide and build a duplex on the back. Uh, then you've got, you're turning sort of one into three. Another one is sort of a one into three subdivision where you've got a house on the front and then you subdivide the, the block twice and then you build two houses out the back. So you, you're sort of developing a, a bit of stuff there. So that, and, uh, you know, they can be great ways. And then you've got the choice. You can sell some of those new properties or you can keep them for cash flow or, you know, a bit of both. Um, another strategy that, that can work is when you're um, just buying vacant land and, and getting that subdivided and you've got two vacant blocks and you can you can sell them without, you know, doing anything with them. So that's uh, that's a possibility as well. But but generally, yeah, the, 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 the generally old... Um, uh, uh, you know, just duplexes and, and, and subdivisions and stuff tend to work quite well for the, uh, yeah, for adding value. Yep. Are there any things that you think the average investor just really isn't getting right? Like if there's, if there's one key thing that you would like people to stop doing that's getting in the way of what they're setting out to achieve with property investing, what, what do you think that would be? Uh, look, I, I think there's a lot of uh, analysis paralysis and I think people are always looking for that next great deal and no matter how good a deal you might have you people are always thinking that there's a better deal and they that stops them from sort of jumping in and doing something uh so you know there's always going to be something you know better out there potentially but if that stops you from doing anything then uh you know that's not much good and the other thing i think also is that people get very worried about what what markets are doing because they they always hear that there's going to be a, a crash and all that kind of stuff so what i think uh, people need to do is focus on their long-term goals and not be too worried about what the uh, you know what the market what the hearsay of the markets are doing because you know most of the time that you know that talk doesn't come true anyway so they they need to just um you know, look at their goals and try to keep themselves accountable for that yeah there's always something in journalists have, have got to write something about the property market right we've got an insatiable appetite for it and you know bad news sells good news doesn't sell so they've got to write something <laughs> right Exactly. Lloyd, what's this property trifecta that you talk about? So the property trifecta is basically, it's three things, obviously being a trifecta. It's cash flow, capital growth, uh, and um, and just uh, the instant equity. So the capital growth meaning you're buying in a good location with all the growth, uh, the normal growth drivers uh, so that you buy the property and over time it should uh, should go up because it's obviously near, uh, near the amenities. It's in areas of rising rising employment, population, all that kind of stuff. The instant equity, as we've spoken about, that's where you're just adding that value to the property. Uh, and then the, uh, the cash flow is the third one where you're actually getting, uh, you know, really good rental uh, from the property. So effectively a, a dual income or something. So it's trying to achieve all those things in the one property. Now, everybody knows, Lloyd, that you can either have cash flow or growth. How on earth have you got them into this trifecta? Well, the thing is that you can actually have um, all three. Now, uh, as we've, uh, as people are probably aware, yes, you, you know, you go buy a property in Sydney, it's going to be growth, but the rental units are the worst in the country. Or you can go to a, a remote location and uh, and and just you know just have good yields there, but you're not going to get any growth. But you know, th- there's obviously a balance there, and if you get into a good good location that has all the growth drivers there, then you know you get uh, the capital growth over time, but you're also getting that that cash flow. Uh, so you, you can get both, uh, and um, and add to that the the cash flow, which I'm 
you know, I really like is you know as dual income. Now, dual income doesn't have to be through duplexes. I mean, there's other strategies for that, such as you know putting you know granny flat on the um, on the book uh, on the back of the uh, on the black uh, block and things like that as well. Now, of course, I, I was being a little bit uh, facetious there because it seems like there's kind of like a cash flow or there's a growth camp and you're in one or the other, you're team red or you're team blue. I'm wondering how much that sort of uh, notion gets, I guess, part of the interviews that you do because, I mean, you, you wrote the book Positively Geared. So it would be a surprise to anyone that hasn't really heard you speak or read the book that you're actually so so focused on the growth part of it as well. Is that something that people get a little bit confused with? Um, yeah, sometimes, uh, but you know, like gr- growth is definitely something that's really, uh, you know, really important as we've, we've covered off here. So, uh, but the thing, the thing that, um, I like to drive home is that if you've got a negatively geared property or a negatively geared portfolio, that's going to keep you in a job because you're obviously paying, um, for the difference between the rent that's coming in and, and the outgoings on your property, including the, the loan repayments and things like that. Um, but the goal really is to retire. And if you're building a portfolio, surely you want to retire at some point. So keeping it negatively cash flowed uh, just because you're going to get some kind of you know, tax back on it uh, is not really a strategy. It's not really going to work. So that's why positively gearing is, you know, is really important. But that by itself isn't going to do anything unless you're actually you know, getting that growth um, on your properties as well because you can't build a, a large portfolio that's worth a lot of like has a large value unless you're getting um, growth as well and uh, and I think growth through instant equity and growth through capital growth uh, in the market as well so you need to be in the right location so when we talk about duplexes and all that we're not talking about uh, sometimes people get them confused and think oh we can only do that in a in a remote location that's not going to get any growth uh, but it really uh, you need to do them in locations that will get growth. It's 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 got to be the same fundamentals as any other type of property purchase, except you're doing a duplex. Uh, but the fundamentals still be need to be there. If you forget the fundamentals um, in what makes a good property purchase, uh, then you're not going to succeed anyway. Yeah, and I mean that's all part of that trifecta that you you spoke about. Now, the subtitle of your book, Lloyd, is How to Build a Multi-Million Dollar Property Portfolio from a $40,000 Deposit. Now, in fairness, we do have 15 or 20 minutes left. So can you give us that roadmap or we just got to buy the book? Uh, you, might, you might have to buy the book to, uh, to, to find out. I'm not sure whether I'll give you the whole roadmap on that there. But look, the thing about that is it, it goes through, it breaks down, firstly, my portfolio, how I started, um, where I came from and then where I am now uh, and I break it down into uh, you know a number of uh, strategies and, uh, and 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 as I guess essentially how you can actually start with a really low deposit uh, and then just use equity to sort of build that that portfolio and those kind of strategies are still um, you know available today so some people think that you know property markets are more expensive these days and um, you know lending's tougher and well that's true you know 20 years ago, People were saying the same thing, so uh, so yeah, these strategies are definitely uh, still possible. But it's really about uh, yeah, understanding the different types of strategies, and, and the books. It's really about um, education and, and trying to sort of get my message out there about you know if if I can do it, so can you. Because I, I wasn't born with you know a silver spoon in my mouth and with lots of money or anything like that. So um, yeah, so I, I really do believe that if uh, that if I can get ahead, then um, other people do can do. But you you really do need to. Uh, you know, have some goals, 
Uh, and also, you know, I've got a chapter in there around budgeting, uh, around finance, uh, you know, talk about, uh, you know, what happened in the GFC, talk about what happened with the, the Royal Commission with the banking a couple of years ago and a lot of information there and, and to help people understand, um, you know, how the markets worked back then and, and what, what was good and what was not good to buy in those times and, and how that can affect your portfolio when you buy during those times. And, you know, at the moment, you know, it's, it's also another example of, uh, you know, whether we should buy, whether we shouldn't buy and all that kind of stuff, all those questions. Um, it's the same sort of thing. Beautiful. I haven't uh, had the pleasure myself, but I definitely be, will be tracking that down to to have a read. Lloyd, let, let's say using that, um, I guess, that subtitle uh, with a $40,000 deposit. Now, y- your average investor owns one property. Depending on the latest ATO tax stats, it's about 72% of people only ever get one, which is unlikely to to change their life or, or really sort of get them out of their job such as you've done. How important it is is it to get that first one right and and how do we how do we do that let's say we've got that 40 or 50,000 dollar deposit the the first one has it really got to be an equity uplift to really launch you the first the first property is is really crucial to uh you know to your portfolio if you get that wrong it can really hold you back uh so uh yeah so that's really really important uh and it's also uh like you do need to have um some equity uplift there but it really depends on what your time frame for your goals are because if you're buying in a, a good location and, and maybe with 40K, that does limit to where you can buy. But, uh, but that, yeah, 40K being an example there. I mean, a lot of people can start with a 60 or an 80K deposit uh, as well and that gets you into some you know, different sort of locations. So, uh, so it really depends on exactly what your, you know, your, your starting point is. Uh, but, but definitely you do need to look at, I, I believe you need to look at um, making some equity uplift in your properties to start with so that you're not just sort of sitting in and, and waiting that you really want to try to be able to move uh, ahead quicker to, you know, to build that, that portfolio. One thing that we haven't talked about, which I know is a, is a part of your, your strategy and your skill set, is negotiation. How, how important is that for someone building their portfolio? Yeah, well, Mark, that's, that's really important all the time because you really need to uh, – I guess you really need to understand the true value of a property. Uh, so really know the markets you're buying in, uh, what, what properties have been selling for over the last six months and, and how long they've been sitting on the market for and the methods of sale, whether they've been by private treaty and via auction and also the auction clearance rates and things like that. So be really up to date with that. Uh, and then, you know, ne- negotiation, uh, it doesn't just come down to, to price, but it also comes down to terms. Uh, you know, do you want to put down a 5% deposit instead of a 10% deposit you want longer settlement terms because uh, sometimes you can offer a higher deposit or a slightly higher price maybe to have a three-month settlement uh, because that'll allow you to work on your DA if you're going to put a DA in the council and things like that so there's there's a lot of other negotiation things that come in that can play into your favor other than just just price by itself uh, and of course we're not just talking about buying the property or buying the block of land negotiation comes into uh, if you're going to do your um, build you need to find the right builder and then negotiate you know a good price with them but also really good inclusions and uh and and, and also uh you know things in the contract that actually mitigate your risks and things as well so there's there's a lot of things with uh negotiation i think sometimes people just think getting something for the very best price the other thing is also important is that sometimes people want to you know try to get something for you know the very cheapest price but uh you can't put in silly offers because then you're not really taken seriously so you, i think it's important to put in a reasonable offer on a property um, but you don't want to pay too much for the property, but you also want to make sure you're not looking silly. 
because uh, you need to make sure that you're, you're, you're informed and educated on what the, the markets are doing. I was just about to say the evidence that you put forward with your offer if you are going under the sale price is important too, right? Like if you can share some RP data stuff to say, look, comparables are going around this point, the market's softened a little bit, we think this is reasonable, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so I, I do that when I put in an offer. Um, I also say things like, uh, you know, the gutter needs repairing or there's a crack in the, the ceiling or uh, that might need a bit of repair or I've had a quote for the plumbing that's going to cost $5,000 so I think it's fair that we offer this price. So all those sort of things. Uh, and then the other thing also is that you can, once you've got an offer, accept it, for example, and you, you go under contract, uh, I usually make the offer subject to things like, um, obviously subject to things like finance, but also subject to building and pest inspection. The building uh, uh, inspection comes back and there's some uh, faults in the the building or there's termites in the property or whatever. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean you walk away. You can walk away, but it also might mean that you can negotiate a better price and say, well, it's going to cost me $10,000 to, to get that staircase fixed because the building inspector said there was an issue with it or, or the stumps under the house need replacing and stuff like that. So you can actually negotiate a better price based on that. So the negotiation process can keep continuing um, until, you, until you basically go you know, unconditional on the property. Yeah, I mean, I think some people speak about it so simplistically. It's about you know just trying to buy under market, but as you highlight, there's a there's a lot of areas where negotiation is really important. Getting back to yourself, what does your portfolio look like now, and what are your plans? And I'm just interested, where was that sort of point after your light bulb that you got to the point where you realised that you didn't have to have a job anymore? Uh, yeah, so. My portfolio at the moment, I've got about 16 properties, um, but more importantly, the value around that is uh, about $12 million. Uh, that includes my PPR that we're, we're living in, which is, I guess we'd call that, that, that our dream home. Uh, and for after we, uh, after I did that sort of that, that light bulb moment, uh, I think it you know, probably took another you know, five or six years uh, before I was sort of in a position that I uh, don't really need to work anymore. And... Uh, you know, retired from teaching and all that kind of stuff, and my my passive income um, was was more than what I was earning as a teacher and all that kind of stuff. Um, my my goals moving forward uh, are more around uh, you know the growth of my my business, I guess, and and trying to help other people sort of replicate what I've done, but also um, through my business trying to help people sort of less fortunate than myself. So you know, I've got some sort of big plans to try to help people in third world countries such as Nepal and Africa with uh, you know, education potentially building uh, you know, properties and stuff like that. And uh, you know, at the moment we uh, you know, donate money to, say, the Cancer Council, which is close to my heart because my dad passed away from cancer. And um, then you know, this year you know, we had the bushfires here in January and February and we, um, we donated 20% of our, um, all our revenue for 20, uh, January and February um, towards bushfire appeal and stuff like that. So, so th- those are the kind of things that I'm um, sort of looking for in the future uh, more so than just, you know, I'm not, not, I'm not sort of chasing a number with my properties. I'm not sort of saying I want to get to 20 or 30 or, or 50. I mean, over the last couple of years, I've sold a couple of properties and bought a couple of properties. So uh, the value of my portfolio has been increasing, but the number of properties I've got have probably remained pretty consistent because I've, uh, you know, I've sold a couple and bought a couple, as I said, um, depending on how I, um, what I'm doing with my portfolio. 
Yeah, that's that's fantastic, and thank you for sharing that. I was hoping you would talk a little bit about the philanthropy, philanthropy stuff because it's clear that um, money isn't the the sole driver for you. And I've come across a few people that I guess are sort of similarly wired. They they might sort of be interested in, um, let's say, humanity causes or environmental causes and and the thought of accumulating wealth is you know it's a little bit sort of unattractive or or tacky but my argument is that well if that's the way that you're wired who better to grow more wealth than what you need than you because you're more likely to give it away right well absolutely and and i think that you know once you do have wealth you you know i think we do have a responsibility to try to help other people and things like that. I mean, there's, a, there's only so much money you need yourself. You know, once you've got a roof over your head and you've got a nice car and a boat and whatever else you actually need, I mean, there's, you know, you don't need to keep buying toys. And like I said before, I've, I've always been fairly frugal. I mean, I do have nice things these days. I mean, uh, people who know me know that I you know, do drive nice cars and things, but I didn't, you know, I, I do that now because I can, but but I'm still not into buying, you know, I don't go and buy a new car every six months. And so I, I still don't buy any toys like that. So, you know, I've got, got what I'm not, I like now and um, and I'm really into, yeah, I, I really am into sort of helping helping other people. And uh, and I guess, you know, a big thing about why I'm doing the business is, is just trying to help, you know, people, uh, you know, get ahead, and because uh, you know, often people ask me, "What you know? Why do I? Why do I do this when I could just sort of retire my portfolio?" But the thing is that you know you can't just sort of retire and do nothing. You need to do do something to to be you know, to contribute in life. And and for me, it's uh, you know I'm really passionate about property and the vehicle that it is to help people uh, get to where you want to get to. And uh, and I really just like meeting people and and talking their goals with them, and then and and helping show them how they can get into you know where they want to uh, you know where they want to be. Yeah, that's awesome. And you can't fake the passion, and certainly you've got it, Lloyd. How do people get in touch with you if they want to have a chat? Uh, yeah, so um, my website's Aus Property Professionals. It's AUS Property Professionals.com.au. Uh, they, um, and they, yeah, the phone number's up on the 1 800 number's up on the website, uh, or they can leave an inquiry. They can actually email me directly if they want on Lloyd at Aus Property Professionals.com.au. Um, and, but I'd recommend people uh, grab a copy of the book um, that's obviously available on uh, the website but it's also available through uh, you know <clears throat> most book retailers uh, it's been a um, best-selling book on Amazon but it's also uh, you know you can get it in in Dimmix and uh, you know all, all the sort of bookstores but either walking or, or online through Booktopia and stuff as well awesome and I presume you've downloaded a fair chunk of your brain and strategy into those pages uh, there's a lot there's a lot in there so pe- people can read that book and then they probably don't even need my help they can just uh, you know read, read the book and then go and uh, set themselves a strategy so yeah there's a lot of good stuff in there that I, I think can help people now if there's one piece of advice that you could give to property investors Lloyd what do you think that would be get it get educated just just make sure that you don't, yeah, one of the, one of the, the best things you can do is get educated so you're not making mistakes. So sometimes that, that property you didn't buy can be the best investment you make rather than, you know, you don't want to, um, you know, buy the wrong properties and just buy for the sake of it. So don't, don't rush into it. Get, get educated. Um, seek out mentors or, or you know, seek, seek yourself around people who I guess have achieved what you're trying to achieve and get some advice. Um, but yeah, you know, sort of trustworthy people. So you know, don't fall in for 
you know, salespeople are trying to sell you a property or something, but just just try to get some honest advice from people and, and maybe people that can that, that can help you um, if they've achieved something themselves. But I think it's really important that you get educated. And the other part of that is then you, you need to have a strategy. You need to actually know your why and then set a strategy around that why uh, to help you get there. That's awesome. Really, really great advice, and I've thoroughly enjoyed picking your brain, Lloyd. Thank you very much for sharing your time and your wisdom today. Uh, Pleasure, Mike. It's been great to be with you. Cheers. 